From the hallowed hallways of Shed High School, from WSHDLP Eastport, this is Round the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane from Eastport, Maine. Stay tuned for historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world. Ever thought of a career as an ambassador? An attaché? An emissary? A visiting dignitary? We are broadcasting this hour from the Round the World Foreign Service Institute in the class on table manners. How a well-bred emissary acquits themselves at the dinner table when on an important diplomatic mission. Our lecture this hour is devoted to how proper deportment at the table has evolved over the centuries. Here from Etiquette of the Table published in 1891. It is rude to take knife and fork in hand and commence drumming on the table whilst you await your food. But we see that by 1941 just the opposite is considered de rigueur. To explain, here is Donna and her Don Wands, Ed, George, and Charlie, with Horse Height and his 1941 musical nights. A knife, a fork, and a spoon.
was Alegrias, a.k.a. Table Dance, featuring the 1917 La Calle's Spanish Orchestra. You'll make quite an impression on your diplomatic hosts as you dance on the table whilst playing castanets. Before that, we learned how to entertain assembled diners by drumming with a knife, a fork, and a spoon from 1941. Donna and her Don Juans, Ed, George, and Charlie, with Horace Height and his musical nights, gave the illustrative example. Welcome back to the Round the World's Foreign Service Institute class on table manners. Next, we see that etiquette of the table of 1891 says, do not gesture with your knife and fork, nor make illustrations upon the tablecloth therewith. However, by 1940, Art Castle and his castles in the air were instructing people how to do just that. Here's table trucking. Everybody come and listen You don't know what you've been missing This will help your education Use your hands for this creation Get round the table and all sit tight Do your trucking at the table tonight Now all you pupils, follow me Here we go now, 
One or two or three. Slap knees, clap hands, wave hands, rap, rap. Susie Q left, Susie Q right. Dig left, then you dig right. Peck to the left and peck right. And they call it table shrugging. Slap knees, clap hands, wave hands, rap, rap. Susie Q left, then Susie right. Dig left and dig to the right. Peck left, peck right. Slap knees, clap hands, wave hands, rap, rap. Susie Q left and Susie Q right. And that's called table trucking. Just once more. Slap me, clap hands, wave hands, and rap, rap. Susie Q to the left and then to the right. Dig left and dig right. Peck to the left and peck right. And they call it tables rocking. Slap knees, clap hands, wave hands, and rap, rap. Susie Q to the left and Susie right. Dig to the left and dig right. Peck left. Peg to the right, slap knees, clap hands, wave hands, rap, rap, Susie left, Susie right, dig left and right, and that's call tables rockin'.
We just heard Dravena Litsikar, Wooden Spoon, Wooden Fork. That was Alexandra Kolompara playing the cembalo with the Jatska Pahika Slovenian Gypsy Orchestra in 1929. Before which, we heard examples of the various antics one may engage in at a state dinner to win the hearts of your hosts, and described by Art Castle and his Castles in the Air in 1940. And continuing with our recital of 1891 table manner taboos, never encourage a dog or cat to play with you at the table, and do not talk loudly or boisterously at the table. The Bob Perkins trio shows that by 1949, however, an uproarious table is considered desirable. Here is Boogie Woogie Bowl. Start jumping about one o'clock, standing boogie boogie and a little bit fire, whiskey and beer, a little gin and wine. You can tell everybody you had a wonderful time. French fried shrimp, potatoes too, cold cabbage slaw and barbecue. The waiters will be jumping from plate to plate. Get your order in early so you won't be late. <laughs> Just call for Pete. He knows what everybody likes to eat. It ain't too old, it ain't just right. You can get fine service anytime at night. When you walk in, look the menu down. No better food any place in town. You get your fish and your oysters too. Big frog legs and good crab too. The waitress will say that it ain't ready yet. But just stick around, cause that ain't all you'll get. You'll get some boogie. Where, man? You get some boogie. Where, man? You get some boogie. Jumping at the boogie woogie ball.
Eddie Elkins Orchestra from 1921. That was Teacup Girl. This was preceded by the boisterous dinner behavior described by the 1949 Bob Perkins Trio in Boogie Woogie Bowl. You are tuned to the Round the World Foreign Service Institute class on table manners. Let's review some tips on the use of your table weapons from the 1890s. Don't put your food in your mouth using your knife. Don't use your fork as if it were a shovel or a pitchfork. Don't roll your spoon around in your mouth. Well, times certainly have changed. Plus, when acting as a diplomatic emissary, your host will most likely assume such behaviors perfectly normal in your home country. Here's Don Redman and his orchestra with their 1933 Watching the Knife and Fork Spoon.
Roger Wolf Kahn and his orchestra just had a 1926 cup of coffee, a sandwich, and you. This was preceded by Watching the Knife and Fork Spoon, illustrated by Don Redman and his 1933 orchestra, and you are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. This is Round the World Foreign Service Institute class on table manners. We are reviewing a few examples of how etiquette has evolved over the centuries. According to Etiquette of the Table from 1891, never allow the conversation at the table to drift into anything but chit-chat. The consideration of deep and abstruse principles will impair digestion. But in 1937, a deep philosophical treatment of the meaning of life is presented at the dinner table by Rudy Valley and his Connecticut Yankees. Here is life as just a bowl of cherries. People are queer, they're always crowing, scrambling and rushing about. Why don't they stop someday, address themselves this way? Why are we here, where are we going, it's time that we found out. We're not here to stay, we're on a short holiday. Life is just a bowl of cherries, don't take it serious. It's too mysterious. You work, you slave, you worry so, but you can't take your dough when you go, go, go. So keep repeating, it's the berries. The strongest oak must fall. The sweet things in life to you were just loaned, so how can you lose what you've never owned? Life is just the charitable so live and laugh at it all. Life is just a bowl mit cherries. Don't take it serious, it's too mysterious. For years and years, I was so glad that I was born yet. Now, instead of playing chess, I'm playing corny corny. The boys in the band give me raspberries. Oh, they make me feel so small. In Carnegie Hall, I think that I make a hit. Now look where I wind up, in this stuffy pit. Ach, du lieber, life is still a bowl mit cherries. And I tell you a secret. Sauce my cousin Hugo. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious, it's too mysterious. Now I was the winner of a beauty prize, but the method used opened up my eyes. Once I did believe in fairies, but now I don't at all. They all examined me just as you would a pup, and I wound up with a ribbon and this lousy cup. Life is just a bowl of cherries, so live and laugh at it all. 
Life is a sort of receptacle for fruit, isn't it? Don't let it affect you too profoundly. It's trying to get into the deepest words related to the Monster. I thought I was in the House of Parliament making a speech. Oh, where was I? In the blooming House of Parliament. Yes, yes, yes. The strongest oak must fall. The sweet things in life were just loneliness. So how can you lose something that you never possessed? Life is a sort of jolly artichoke, isn't it? So just say, cheerio, doo-doo-doo, we carry on, and they won't. Peep-peep. Life is just a ball. Don't take it serious. It's too ma-hup-ma-hup-ma-serious. Every morning, I've got a date to take my plunge through the Empire State. I'll admit it's not in a building quite so tall. Now, the boss of this band, the girls want a kiss. He gets thousands a week for just crooning like this. A life is just a bowl of cherry. On that bowl and laugh at it all. Turn the corner with the banners flying. 
another cup of coffee. And let's have another pizza pie. On the Table, featuring the 1926 New Orleans Owls. Before that, Marion Hutton, Ernie Caceres, and the Modern Airs with Glenn Miller and his 1942 orchestra encouraged us to have another cup of coffee. And our sets started with a 1937 philosophical treatment of the purpose of our existence, a topic once considered unsuitable for the dinner table, according to our etiquette book from 1891. Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries was presented by Rudy Valley and his Connecticut Yankees. And we now quote from George Washington's Rules of Civility, copied out when he was 14 in 1748. 
make no show of taking great delight in your victuals. Feed not with greediness. We see that by 1950, this precept was out the window, as evidenced by Chicago Carl Davis, who was assisted here by Eddie Davis and his band in 1950. I'm going to eat you with a spoon. Miss Emily Portsmouth disagrees With the lyrics I'm singing to this melody But I'll put etiquette back on the shelf If it's the only way I can express myself Your hand as barn brown chicken Your mellow as yellow moon Can't you see my lips I'm licking Girl, I could eat you with a spoon. You're fancy as a plate of French pastry, and I'm as frantic as a hungry little. And to me, you sure look tasty. Girl, I could eat you with a spoon. Now I'm not a famous connoisseur of sticks and chops and fish. Say the one thing I can say for sure You're a real delicious dish You're as tempting as a toasted marshmallow And I'm afraid you may melt too soon Hurry, say that I'm your fellow Cause I could eat you with a spoon Thank you. 
was Derek Sampson in 1945 who gave us Tabletop Boogie. But we started with Chicago Carl Davis with Eddie Davis and his band in 1950. I'm going to eat you with a spoon. An illustration of eating with greediness, a practice abhorred by George Washington in 1748. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport, the Round the World Foreign Service Institute class on table manners is preparing aspiring ambassadors for the consular dinner table. Now, the Gentleman's Book of Etiquette and Manual of Politeness from 1873 states, if you wish for a knife, plate, or anything from the side table, never address those in attendance as, waiter, but call one of them by name. If you cannot do this, make him a sign without speaking. However, the Basin Street Boys with Eddie Beale's Fortet will now supersede this rule with the 1946 I Need a Knife, Fork, and a Spoon. I need a knife, fork, and a spoon. Hey, waiter, will you make it soon? I want to eat this meal, but it ain't no deal without a knife. Walking a spoon Where's the salt? Sugar and salt Hey, waiter I'm gonna call your boss Can't season this jive Until you arrive with the salt Sugar and salt I've got an appetite It's really abnormal I'll eat just a bite That's me and fumble This fine dish I'm going to eat Because you're tender And greater meat Where's the cup? But I'll eat this meal Because it's still a good deal Without a knife Walking a spoon Hey, wait. 
Jordan and his Timpany Five, 
Boogie Woogie Blue Plate from 1946. We also heard a 1946 example of hollering at the waitstaff, considered bad form in 1873. That was the Basin Street Boys with Eddie Beal's Fortet, yelling, I need a knife, a fork, and a spoon. Okay, we have a few minutes left, so let's hear again from the fascinating George Washington Rules for Civility. He says, Cleanse not your teeth with the tablecloth, napkin, fork, or knife. But if others do it, let it be done without a peep to them. And the Gentleman's Book of Etiquette and Manual of Politeness from 1873 says, Always wipe your mouth before drinking, as nothing is more ill-bred than to grease your glass with your lips. And speaking of grease, Trombone Red and his Blue Six is on hand with the 1931 Greasy Plate Stomp. It came from Caroline About to make my heart ache About to make my stomach take About to make me hesitate See it coming on a plate What makes me feel so happy You know my dear old pappy Used to hate this good old cake But he served it on a three-day plate now my father was some waiting food And he learned it by the root Says all I need Some good old pudding A nice brown steak and I'm not kidding Chop your onions up mighty fine Let you place them on your plate with your tenderloin Fry two eggs, if that won't do Try some celery and some garlic too if you leave that, you will run and wrong. Supper with the greasy plate song, counting you. Supper with the greasy plate song.
sugar bowl Doing that Covina roll They're having a session at the sugar bowl Harold Dean has got his queen Jumping like a jelly bean They're romping and stomping that Covina roll Young Sundays are taboo, slugging a shag's all they do. Old Pop James is doing it too, since Sugar Bowl's gone, swing of room. Everyone has lost control, doing that Covina roll, since Haroldine is swinging at the Sugar Bowl. heard Greasy Plate Stomp, Trombone Red and his 1931 Blue Six. And we ended our class on diplomatic table manners, swinging at the Sugar Bowl in 1938. Boisterous dinner table behavior by Nappy Lamar with Bob Crosby and his orchestra. And this concludes the musical portion of the Round the World Foreign Service Institute class on correct dinner table deportment. A survey of centuries of historical sources showed that it was once considered ill-mannered to use the table and cutlery as a percussion ensemble or dance on the table during dinner. One shouldn't scream with pleasure at the taste of the delicious food and do not use the tablecloth to clean your teeth or lick your plate at the end of the meal. But according to the 20th century 78 RPM canon, many of these precepts can now be disregarded. This brings us up to date in our effort to mold future emissaries and ambassadors who will reflect the good breeding of those brought up in the Round the World Castle. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. This is Round the World with Cracklin' Jane. Now, speaking of flatware, we bring you now a 1945 episode of Boston Blackie, in which somebody winds up with a knife in their chest. The story is called The Worthington Pearls. So let's listen. (laughs) 
Faraday. You wanted me here in headquarters for questioning. Here I am, and I know some wonderful ants. Well, Blackie, they better be good. Well, first you answer one question for me. Why am I here? The Worthington pearls have been stolen. That's why you're here. Faraday, really, I'm disappointed in you. Your reason is the same old stuff. I don't say you stole the pearls. I'm just not taking any chances. I'm rounding up every suspect in town. Oh, well, in that case, I, I'm glad you didn't slight me. Well, I'm giving you a good going over. I got men searching your apartment now. And I'm going to have you search, too. Promise you won't take off? Now, look. Be a nice boy, will you? And behave yourself. Take off your coat. A whistle of waltz. I take off things better that way. Hold it. My coat? You know what I mean. Hello? Inspector, there's a telephone call for Blackie. Can he take it? I suppose so. I'll put him on. Here, Blanky, it's for you. Make it snappy. It's probably Mary Wesley wanting to know what case I'm solving for you now. You never did anything for me but make trouble. Quiet, Faraday. I don't want Mary to know that I'm on speaking terms with you. Hello. Here's your call, Blanky. Thanks. Hello, Blanky? Yeah? Blanky, it's Shorty. Well? Hey, look, boss, I stopped up at your place again today and had a joint's full of cops. I know, but I was going to have the place repainted anyhow. Hey, what do you want? Look, boss, what's up? What did I get you the job for? It's nothing to worry about, Shorty. Fire days after the Worthington Pearls, that's all. What did you say? <laughs> and this will give you a laugh. He's going to search me for the pearls right now. Hey, hey Blackie, you got your raincoat with you? Of course I have. It's raining out, isn't it? Why do you ask? Why? Because if you look in the left-hand pocket of your raincoat, you'll find the Worthington Pearls there. That's why. And now, Richard Calmer's Boston Blackie. Enemy to those who make him an enemy, friend to those who have no friends. I'm trying to be patient. What are you so happy about, Blackie? Well, I'm glad to see you do something to earn your salary. You're actually making a job out of searching my clothes. Well, stop looking so smart, wise guy. I never said you had the pearls. But you're searching me for them. Oh, uh, don't forget the uh, trouser linings there. I don't need any help from you. Since when? All right, genius. Put your clothes back on. What? No valid service? Come on, come on. Here's your coat. Help me on with it, will you, Faraday? And don't look so unhappy. I could have told you in the beginning you wouldn't find the Worthington pearls on me. I'm not through yet. You brought a raincoat with you. Where is it? I brought a raincoat? What makes you think so? I saw you, that's what. There it is on the chair. No, I hope I don't find the pearls in this coat. I don't want you around here giving our jail a bad name. I'll be glad to help you find them. I said I didn't need your help. Uh-huh. What's this? In the right-hand pocket of the raincoat? My wristwatch. I was taking it to the jewelers to have it fixed. Open the box. You'll see. Yeah, just a watch. Take a good look at it, Faraday. I've always said you didn't know what time it was. Well, it's time I convinced you you're not so smart, Blackie. I know that. Hurry up and finish searching my raincoat, will you? Nothing in the lining. Nope. Or in the collar. No. Uh-huh. The left-hand pocket, huh? What's in it, Barney? There's nothing in it. Take this moth-eaten raincoat and get out of here. <laughs> Thanks. What are you turning up the collar for? To keep the rain off my neck. And you to match. Thanks for the lift, George. I'll take you up on something, too, someday. Yeah, I might day off. Oh, hi. Hiya, Blackie. I got here as soon as I could. J- just like you told me on the phone. That's fine, Shorty. I sort of got here too soon. I-, I couldn't get any apartment. Look, Short, when you have some fast explaining to do, 
How did those stolen pearls turn up in my raincoat pocket? Oh, gee, boss, they, they were there, huh? Well, you ought to know. You told me. Oh, I hate to hear the answer to this one, boss. What did Inspector Friday say when he found them? He didn't find them. Huh? That's what I... Huh? He, he didn't find them? No. Now, tell me how I happened to have them in the first place. Well, you see, it all goes back to before the first place, boss. You, you remember the morning when it was raining and, and I borrowed your wrinkle? Yes. Well, I, I didn't want to get your wrinkle too wet, so I ducked in Natasha's rendezvous. And who should shoulder up beside me but Duke Butcher? I don't like that. Oh, no, boss. I like that. Because Duke Butcher ain't looking for me. Then I like that. Uh, no, boss. I don't like that. Because when I get outside and put my hand in your raincoat pocket, what comes up but the widened and poils, which is unloaded on me by Duke Butcher. Well, do you like that or don't you? Well, I don't like it, boss, because you ain't there. And when I get back, so I can tell you that you got the poils in your pocket. But I do like it that Inspector Faraday didn't find them. Well, he hasn't found them yet. You like that, huh? I don't like it, Shorty, because until Faraday finds them, Duke Butcher is going to think that you have them. And let's not worry about it. Let's do something about it. Yeah, it's a good idea, boss, because Duke is sure going to come around to me asking for them poils. Well, let's go into the apartment. Maybe we can get an idea. Okay. Well, we better work fast, too, boss. Why? Well, Duke is looking to get the poils from me. Whiny Scanner is looking to get the poils from Duke. And the cops is looking to get them from everybody. Maybe I'll be looking for them myself before we're through. Boss, don't you know where they are? All right, both of you must reach. Blackie, it's Duke. Hello, Duke. Stay where you are, Blackie. I don't mind the sight of blood if it's somebody else's. Boss, don't, don't fool with Duke. He, he ain't very sociable. Well, if he were, Shorty, he'd know it's not polite to point at his host. Especially with a gun. Right now, I'm playing host. Bad casting. What do you want? Shorty hasn't told you, huh? Oh, the pearls. Yeah, the pearls. Okay, Shorty. Just a minute, Duke. Shorty doesn't have the pearls. How do you know? He gave them to me. For safekeeping, huh? So you could hand them back to me. All right, let's have them. Sorry, I don't have them either. Quit stalling. I'm not stalling, Duke. I just don't have the pearls. I got ways of finding out about that. Don't get too close to me, Blackie. I know your tricks. Come on, take off your clothes. Oh, not that again. Come on, toss over your coat, but gently. All right. Stand right where you are. Toss your coat over to me. Easy now. Okay. And it's going to be just too bad for both of you guys if I don't find the pearls. All right, Doug. Here's my coat. Catch it. Hey, I said... Hey! hey what's that, boss? You're going to hit him right in the face. All right, away from me. Drop that gun. Stop it. You're breaking my arm. Stop it. Let go of that gun. Pick up his gun, Shorty, and keep it out of his reach. I got it, boy. I don't need a gun to take care of you, Blackie. No? What do you bet? Hey, you want me to hit him with something, boss? No. No, okay, Shorty. I can handle him. Oh. Yeah. Oh, boy, Blackie. Nothing in this room could have hit him any harder than that last punch of yours. He ought to be out for a little while. Yeah. Well, what do we do with him? That depends on how friendly he is after he wakes up. Uh-oh. Hey, gee, boss, I... I wonder who that is. We might try answering it to find out. Well, what do you say? I say, uh, who's there? It's Faraday. Faraday? Wow. You can say that again. I'm, I'm too scared. We got Duke in here. I'll call. Uh, just a minute, Faraday. I'll be right with you. Hurry it up. I don't have all day. Listen, Shorty. While Duke's still unconscious, tie him up and gag him. Yeah? And then run over to the garage and get the car. Okay, boss. But 
What are you going to do with Friday? I'll keep him outside in the hall. Or better still, I'll take him downstairs to the restaurant. Okay. I'll meet you back here in half an hour. Okay, boss. You leave everything to me. I can handle it. Oh, sure, boy. Well, it's about time, Blackie. Uh, you don't want to come into an untidy apartment, Inspector. Hey, hey, who are you shoving? You. Listen, I want to talk to you inside. I want to listen to you outside. What are you hiding in there? Six stolen elephants and a giraffe, and we can't open the windows or the pigeons will fly out. Now, be a nice boy, will you? And, and come back some other time, Faraday, please. Now, listen, Blackie. You be square with me. I'll be square with you. But you have a head start at being square, and I do mean head. Now, look, Blackie, I came up here to... All fly. right, Faraday, all right. I'm sorry. Well, then be sorry enough to tell me what you know about the Worthington Pearls. I didn't steal them. I don't have them, period. But you know something about them? Question mark? All right, question mark. You know something about them? <laughs> That's better. Yes, I do. Come on down to the restaurant, and I'll try to forget it's impolite to eat and talk at the same time. For one half hour, you talked down in that restaurant, Blackie. I still don't know what you said. That's because you weren't listening, Faraday. It's because you gave me double talk. Look, now come on out with it. Or I go into your apartment and stay till you do. I told you all I know. But you told me nothing. Then I've told you all you know, too. Okay, then. I'm coming into your apartment and I'm staying. Don't think you're not welcome, Inspector, because you're not. This gets me a lot of places I'm not welcome. Oh, uh, Faraday, put that gun away, please. You'll hurt yourself. Come on. Come on, let's go inside. All right. But one of us is going to be awfully sorry. I don't doubt it. Open up. After you. You first. Faraday, one of these days, I'm really going to be mixed up in something, and you're going to be so stunned from the shock that you'll let me get away with it. You're lucky you're not already in... Well, Blackie... Now, what the... Wow. You should have been an actor, Blackie. You actually look surprised. What's Duke Butcher doing lying on the floor over there with a knife in his chest? I don't know, and I'm sure he's too dead to tell us, Inspector. All right, Blackie. No wonder you didn't want me in here. I'm taking you down to headquarters. Listen, Faraday, listen. Duke is the reason I didn't want you to come in here, but... When I left, he was just knocked out, unconscious. Blackie, I'm not listening, which shows you how smart I'm getting. Look, Shorty was going to tie Duke up while I took you downstairs. And then we were going to dump him with his pals, but very much alive. He isn't tied up now, and he isn't alive. He's dead. You're going down to headquarters. All right, Inspector. But let me get my head... Oh, no, you don't. This time, no tricks. Why, Inspector? This is one time you're not going to blow anything in my face, pull any rugs out from under me, throw anything at me, or make any telephone calls, or anything else. Well... You're not going to get away from me this time, Blackie. I've got you right where I want you. For murder. Well, they say murder will out. And believe me, now that it is out, you're in. Now back to Boston Blackie. Duke Butcher stole the Worthington pearls and was forced to unload them into Boston Blackie's raincoat. Later, Blackie, while wearing his raincoat, was searched by Police Inspector Faraday. But Blackie had been warned that the pearls were in his pocket, and Faraday mysteriously failed to find the stolen goods. Still later, Duke Butcher came to Blackie's apartment, demanding the pearls from Shorty. There was a fight, and Butcher was knocked out. Faraday arrived but Blackie took him downstairs to give Shorty a chance to get rid of Butcher. A half hour later, Faraday and Blackie return and find Duke Butcher still in Blackie's apartment, but murdered. As we continue our story, Faraday prepares to take Blackie down to headquarters. 
All right, Blackie. Come on, let's go. Won't you at least let me get my raincoat, Barney? I said no tricks this time. Well, then you get my raincoat for me. What do you say? I say ha-ha, so you'll get a little wet. Come on. I've got a gun on you now. I'm going to keep it on you, and you're going to get moving. All right, Faraday. But if I go out into the rain without my coat, get wet, and die of pneumonia before you can send me to the electric chair, you'll be sorry. Yeah, I'm practically crying. I'll get your handkerchief. Get going, Blackie. Uh, you first? You first. I've got my gun sticking right in your back. Uh, a little higher, Faraday, and move it up and down a little bit. Oh, I like that. I said move. All right, I'm moving. You're pretty helpless when I don't give you a chance to pull one of your tricks, aren't you? Come on, move. This is one time you're not getting away. I figure this is one time he is. Well. Drop your gun, couple. What's sticking in your bag ain't no tootsie roll. Okay, I dropped it. That's the way to keep living, copper. Well, Blackie, I guess you win. But you have to have help from one of your pals. I've never seen this guy before in my life. What? And I don't want you turning around to look at me, copper. I think you could use some sleep. Look, if you think I'm... Well, I appreciate your motives, pal, but aren't your methods a little rough? The inspector's head isn't as hard as it looks. He'll sleep it off. But when he wakes up, he won't laugh it off. Thanks, though. I didn't slug that copper to do you any favors, Blackie. Let's go. Where to? I figure maybe you'd like a little ride in the country. A ride in the country? That's good for the health, I hear. Yeah, generally. What's going to happen to you is going to make a monkey out of whoever said that. My, my, what a lovely day for a ride in the country. Enjoy yourself while you can. When you find out who I am and why I want you, you won't be so happy. How long do I have to wait for that exciting news? When we get to where we're going. You're sure we're going to get there? Look, Blackie, you might as well know it now. I can look in that rearview mirror, too. I see your pal Shorty following us. Oh, well, in that case, this is getting to be a little serious. I saw Shorty behind us the minute we pulled away from your apartment. He just driven up. I'll take care of him. What now, pal? See that little village up ahead? Yeah. When we get into one, I'm going to stop. Your pal Shorty's going to stop, too, a block behind us. He'll figure he's playing it smart. So? So I was going to pick up a couple of friends of mine in the village. But I'll send them back to ride with your pal Shorty instead. And then? Then we'll have Shorty join us at my place. It's going to be a nice little party. A party, huh? Well, why don't we go back to my apartment first and make this sort of a progressive party? Don't worry, Blackie. I'm making all the progress I need. Blackie. Blackie, are you all right? I, uh... I think so, Shorty. I, I think so. Uh, hey, hey, boss, where are we? It's so dark, I can't say nothing but nothing. In a room in a... in a farmhouse, Shorty. Hey, boss, that, that pop on the head they gave me must have paralyzed me. I, I can't move nothing. <laughs> You're probably tied up, Shorty. I am. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I can feel the ropes. Oh, that's different, yeah. Boy, I feel better. Whoever these mugs are, they certainly don't know who I am. I'll have a some of these ropes so fast it'll make your hey, head... Hey, boss. The guy what brought you out here, you don't know who he is? I didn't ask him. He's whiny scamming. No nice guy. Oh, I should have guessed that. He's after the Worthington Pearls. Well, sure he is, Blackie. He knew Duke Butcher stole him. 
Maybe he knew Butcher and loaded him on me, and that I gave him to you. That's fine. Gee, Blackie, I'm, I'm sure sorry I let Scanlon's hoods grab me. I was following you, so maybe I could give you some help. Well, we'll get out of here somehow, Shorty. Uh-oh. Here comes Scanlon. Hey, boss, if you can, I think you better give him the pearls. I Why can't give him... Why Scanlon? He's well known by one off, and I can't what he does to a guy. So... I can't give him the pearls, Shorty. Why not? I'll tell you later. What'll you tell him later? A bedtime story, Scanlon. I hope your boys don't mind the dark. Well, what we can see if it isn't bad. Still a wise guy, ain't you, Blackie? Big boys with little guns don't frighten me, Scanlon. Oh, Shorty told you who I am, huh? And I know what you want, too. The Worthington Pearls. You gave up quicker than I thought you would. Hand them over, I'll let you go. I can't do it. Look, I know you haven't. And what if I don't? Well, we'll see how your pal Shorty here looks in black and blue. I don't let him scare you with that, boss. I don't bruise so easy. Gonna hand over the pearls, Blackie? I don't know. Yeah, maybe if I kick Shorty around a little, it'll help you to find out. I owe you one for that, Scanlon. Believe me, I'll pay you off. But don't kick him again. Uh, that didn't hurt me none, boss. I'll tell him nothing. You better tell me everything, Blackie. The next one will hurt. Okay, Scanlon. I'll tell you where the pearls are, but you'll have to worry about how to get them. Where are they? At police headquarters. You're lying. Blackie, you said Inspector Friday didn't find them. He didn't, Shorty. Before he got around to searching my raincoat, I sneaked the pearls into the tobacco jar on Inspector Faraday's desk. Okay, Blackie, you put them in police headquarters, now you get them out. I can't. If I show my face in police headquarters, I'll be looking through bars for the next ten years. Then figure out a way for me to get them out of Faraday's tobacco jar. Before I go to work on Shorty again. I'm kicked, boss. There's nothing you can do. Wait a minute. You're from out of town, aren't you, Scanlon? Somewhat. So, I don't think Faraday knows you, does he? I'm not known to the cops anyway. I'm too smart. Good. Yeah? You can walk into Faraday's office and walk out again, can't you? Sure. Then you can go for the pearls yourself. Now, how much sense does that make? I walk into a guy's office, reach into his tobacco jar, walk out again, he doesn't suspect anything. I thought you were smart, Blanky. I'll tell you how you can get into Faraday's tobacco jar without raising suspicion. It's better be good. I think you're stolen. Go down to see Faraday and tell him you know where I am. That should make him your buddy. But to prove you know me, mention that I like to smoke his special tobacco in my pipe. And, uh... And that I want to try some, too, huh? Isn't that simple? Uh, yeah, that uh, ought to do it. If you play up the angle that I always did smoke his tobacco in my pipe. That sounds good. It's perfect. All you do, then, is reach inside his tobacco jar, fill your pipe, and palm the pearls. Okay, Blackie, but you better be on the level about this. If I'm not back inside of two hours, my pals have got orders what to do with you. Uh-oh. What kind of orders, Scanlon, old pal? I'll tell you what kind of orders, Shorty. And I'll also tell you all the good jokes I know, so we can die laughing. So, you're the famous Inspector Faraday I heard so much about. I'm glad to know you. I'm glad to know you, Scanlon. Especially if you know where I can find Boston Blackie. Well, I don't know exactly, Inspector Faraday, but I have a rough idea. I'll give it to me and I'll smooth it out. I saw Blanky's car turn into a side road off Harrison Pike, ten miles north of the city limits. How do you know it was Blanky's car? Oh, I know Blanky pretty well. How well? I used to be a friend of his. Well, as long as you just used to be, okay. The road Blanky turned in that goes dead end into the river, Inspector, I think you might catch him. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, uh... Blackie told me once how much he liked your pipe tobacco. Oh, is that so? Yeah, yeah, I'm a not-on-good pipe tobacco myself. You mind if I try a pipe for me? No, no, help yourself. 
I've laid off smoking my pipe for a couple of weeks. Here, the tobacco's in this jar. Ah, thanks. Oh, great aroma. Hey, Inspector, what's that out in the street there? The beginning of a brawl? Huh? Where? I don't see anything. Those kids there screaming at each other. Oh, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just playing a new game. A new game? Screaming at each other? Yeah. <laughs> they call it Blackie Faraday. <laughs> I never heard of it. You want a light? I have one, thanks. Why do you like it? Oh, that's fine, fine. Blackie certainly knew what he was talking about. Yeah, he usually does. But don't ever tell him I said so. Nah. So long, Inspector. And when you catch Blackie, tell him I kind of like your tobacco, John. It had something uh, different in it. Hey, Blackie. Scanlon said his hoods were going to bump us if he wasn't back in two hours. Is it, uh, is it two hours yet? No, Shorty, I don't think so. Oh. Oh, there must be a way out of here. Yeah, but where, boss? There ain't no windows or doors locked. Scanlon's hoods are right outside. Oh, I could get through the locked door, all right, but I don't know how to get through Scanlon's men without a gun. Oh, boss, somebody's opening the door. So I hear. Boss, it's Scanlon. Hello, Blackie. Did you get the pearls, Scanlon? Yeah, I got the pearls. Thanks a lot. I sure hate to double-cross a guy who was on the level with me, Blackie, but this is business. Don't move, either one of you. I'll have to let you have it right now. That boss has got a gun. Don't worry, Shorty. He won't use it. He'll turn us over to his pals. They do all my killing for me. That's how they make a living. Well, I just put him out of business. What? Right, Inspector Faraday. Hey, Blackie, the joint's full of cops. All right, Scanlon, drop that gun or I'll drop you. Okay, okay. Faraday, for once in my life, I'm glad to see you. And for once in my life, I'm not kidding. Why did you follow me here, copy? You don't have anything on me. You'll get answers from me, Scanlon, when I get through with questions of my own. Take him down to headquarters, Rollins. You can't arrest him. Take him away, Rollins. Come give him a hand, Thompson. Look, I want to okay. be booked right away. Uh, uh, wait a minute, Faraday. Don't you give me orders, Blackie. That's right, Faraday. Don't listen to him. I'm ready to go. Don't take Scanlon away just yet. Hold it a minute, boys. All right. Faraday, why did you follow Scanlon? Well, I'm not so dumb, Blackie. I knew Scanlon was up to something when he said you like my pipe tobacco. You don't smoke a pipe. Now he tells me. Faraday, you're wonderful. Scanlon is the playful little fellow who tapped you on the head when you were taking me to headquarters for the murder of Duke Butcher. Scanlon killed Butcher. You can't prove that. Oh, yes, I can. Duke Butcher was in my apartment looking for the Worthington pearls, which he'd stolen and then planted on Shorty. What? Let me finish before you start making arrests, Inspector. Come on, let me up, will you? Scanlon was trying to hijack the pearls from Butcher. That's why he followed him to my apartment. Blackie, this better be good. This is very bad, Inspector, because Scanlon found Butcher tied up the way Shorty and I left him and killed him. When Butcher insisted, he didn't know who had the pearls. That's crazy. Just how crazy do you think it is, Inspector? Well, I don't know. If Scanlon killed Butcher because he didn't have the pearls, who has them now? Scanlon. Huh? Scanlon has the pearls. Here, I'll show you. I'll search him myself, Blackie. Hold him, boys. Right. Blackie, if this is another one of your... Well, I'll be... That's not a string of popcorn you're pulling out of Scanlon's pocket, Faraday. The Worthington Pearls. If Scanlon didn't get these from Butcher, where did he get them? From the tobacco jar in your office. What? How'd they get there? I put them there, Inspector, just before you searched me. You let me chase all over town for these pearls when all the time they were in the tobacco jar on my desk? That's right, Faraday. Put that in your pipe, but don't smoke it. (laughs) 
You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We've just heard a 1945 episode of Boston Blackie, entitled The Worthington Pearls. Now, stay tuned for People Are Funny, hosted by Art Linkletter. This episode is undated, but the show ran on the radio from 1942 to 1960. Here is People Are Funny. I think men are much better drivers than women. Don't be so sure tonight on... People Are Funny! (laughs) Yes, transcribed from Hollywood, John Goodell's production of People Are Funny. And now here's radio's top master of ceremonies, Art Linkletter. Well, hello there. Did you hear what happened to a contestant we sent out last week with a live lion? Well, if you're here, let us know, will you? We haven't heard a thing. (laughs) But never mind, we have a lot of fresh new volunteers tonight. And who's our first fresh one? Roy? (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Arthur McEwen from St. Mary's, Pennsylvania. Meet Art Linkletter. Hello, how do you do? Do Art. What do you do up there, Mr. McEwen? Well, I worked in a department store up until recently. I quit there. I'm developing a fly retriever for fishermen. You know, the reason these folks are up here is before we went on the air, I asked for volunteers among husbands and wives who argue about which one's a better automobile driver. A lot of hands went up in the audience. How do you feel about it, Mrs. McCune? Well, I think women are the better drivers. Uh-huh. Do you think Definitely. you personally are a better driver than Arthur? I think so. Uh-huh. How do you feel about this, Arthur? Oh, men are better driver. I know I'm a better driver than she is. Now, um, I suppose that in general, this argument, of course, is echoed in many, many homes, that uh, the husbands feel that they're better and the wives feel that they're better drivers, huh? That's right. Now we're going to find out tonight. There are a couple of automobiles parked outside on Sunset Boulevard. There's one for each of you. And I want you to drive in different directions around Hollywood. Go up and down Sunset or or Hollywood Boulevard or Vine Street and watch how every other person is driving. As you drive along, notice what other people are doing and I want you to keep track of how other people are breaking the law or doing crazy things. Will you do that? Yes. Now, since you'll be driving, I'll need a couple of people out of the audience at random just to go along for the ride and take notes. Do we have anybody here? Let's see, I'll take uh, this fellow right here and uh, this man right there across the aisle, down. Would you two fellows come up? Uh, uh, John, would you get a pad and a pencil for each of these fellows? Let me just find out their names. Your name, sir, is... uh, Ray Ward. What is your name? (laughs) Frank Helfrey. Now, you fellows, all your job is to do is to ride along with each one of these people, and uh, you'll be going out to take down what they observe in the way of traffic violations around town. Now, you four folks will be driving in Los Angeles traffic for the next 20 minutes, so goodbye. We may never see you again. (laughs) Say goodbye to them, audience. Well, that ought to be kind of interesting. The question is, will they see any bad drivers on the streets of Hollywood? That's what they think. Actually, we don't care what they see. Because the drivers we're watching aren't on the outside of those cars. They're on the inside at the wheel. Those two volunteers I picked out of the audience are no more volunteers than I am. They are inspectors who work for the California Motor Vehicle Department. (laughs) They test people for driving licenses every day. They'll be taking notes on how Mr. and Mrs. McEwen are driving their cars. And when they come back, We may not settle the argument as to whether men or women are better drivers, but we'll know whether Mr. or Mrs. McCune is the better driver, and the winner will get a nice big prize. Who's next, Roy? Mr. and Mrs. Herman Clark from Sherman Oaks, California, Art, but uh, Mr. Clark is still off stage. Hello, Mrs. Clark. How 
do you do? Sherman Oaks? Yes. How long have you been out there? Two years. Mm-hmm. Now, you probably are wondering why we took your husband away. Yes, I am. He is in a dressing room because we don't want him to know what's going on out here. Oh, I see. Very simple method of getting rid of him. You've been married how long, Audrey? Fourteen years. And you have a, a little? Twelve-year-old boy. I suppose he's quite your uh, idol of your apple of your eye, huh? Yes, he is. Yeah, well, it's worth a lot to a parent to have a good child, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, tonight, Mrs. Clark, I'm going to have it worth something more than just pride. I'm going to pay you according to how good a boy your boy is. What's his name? Alan. Alan. Now, I want you to be the judge. For instance, I'm going to give you from $1 to $25 according to how you rate your own child. Let's take obedience, for instance. How obedient is your son? $22 worth. <laughs> well, all right, about $22 worth. All right, that's pretty obedient. Uh-huh. And now, uh, how about uh, when it comes to neatness? $21 worth, I think. About $21. Uh -huh. You have a very valuable child. I think so. Yeah. How are his grades in school? Uh, what part of the class is he in? The top half. He is intelligent, too. Well, how much would you say from $1 to $25? Oh, $24. Well, this kid has an IQ up in the thousands. Now, the next thing. How about helpfulness? Around the house in chores, dishwashing, and things like that. We're giving $21. $21. Your child is evidently a superior child. Well, maybe I only think so. Besides, of course, the money's good, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, How much has she gotten, John? $88. $88 out of a possible $100. That was an easy way to make that money, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh -huh. Now, just to be fair, Mrs. Clark, <laughs> I want to try this whole thing over again, and I'm going to let your husband rate your son. Now, your oh. husband thinks a lot of him. He's very proud of him. Well, now, I hope that your husband has the same opinion of your son as you do, because we are going to use your money during the test. Now, every time your husband rates your son lower than you do, we're going to take $20 away from you. Now, I don't want your husband to be out in front of the audience here where he's liable to be influenced, so I'm going to talk to him privately in the dressing room where he's sitting. We have a hidden microphone in there, and we're going to chat about some of these things very casually. And every time he disagrees with you... You're going to lose $20, and you'll know it because you'll hear me say four words. Boys will be boys. When you hear me say that, that costs you 20 bucks. 20 you understand bucks. that? $5 a word. Take over, will you, Roy? Sure, Art. Well, now, folks, there's a microphone in that dressing room, and of course it's hidden, so Mr. Clark won't know he's on the air. And remember, every time Art says boys will be boys, Mrs. Clark loses $20 out here on stage. Okay, engineer, tune in on the dressing room. You aren't nervous about going on the air. Not very. Well, there's nothing to be nervous about. You were picked because you're a family man. And um, are you have how many ch children? One. One. Well, you know, I have five. So uh, I'll, be, I'll be very gentle with you. <laughs> for, for, well, for instance, we may talk about kids. You know, they are developing their personality. And one of the ways they do it is by not minding. I know mine hardly ever mind me at that age. Do your kids ever disobey you? Are you in other words, the, the boy, and you ask him to do something, and uh, he doesn't do it. No reaction. Yeah, well, you know, Mr. Clark, boys will be boys. <laughs> of course, um, you don't want your kid to be a sissy. No, indeed. Your kid isn't one of those neat sissy kids, is he? 
He wears the uniform of the day, one pair of jeans all week long. <laughs> Stands up in the corner and he climbs out of them on the steam pipe and slides back in them the next morning the same way. Ah, <laughs> uh, boys will be boys. <laughs> Of course, uh, with all the kidding that goes on about bringing kids up, you do want them to learn something, and, and uh, school grades are important. And uh, how does your kid do in school? Oh, he's average. Uh, does he get good grades, would you say? Well, not as good as I'd like, but uh, he gets better than average grades. I'd say he gets good grades. Would you say that, in all honesty, he's in the top, uh, in the top three or four of his class? In all honesty, no. <laughs> Well, I tell you, there's a lot of fun around school as well as studying, and <laughs> boys will be boys. Uh, now, um, about helping around the house. The kids these days actually uh, have a lot of other things to do. They like to watch television. How about your kids in helping around the house, your boy? Well, he's supposed to be on an allowance schedule based on emptying wastebaskets and even a little deal to polish my shoes. But between his mother and myself, he gets his allowance, she empties the wastebaskets, and I polish my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Clark, this has been a wonderful talk, and I think you'll agree with me once again that boys will be boys. <laughs> well, I guess it's time for us to get on the air, so uh, you come on out and we'll try a little stunt out, huh? All right, cut them off, engineer. Well, they'll be back in just a moment, so we'll carry on as though we didn't hear a thing. Now we're getting ready for the stunt, Mr. Clark. Are you all ready now? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. All right, now, uh... Hello, Mrs. Clark. How much money do you have left? I don't think I even know. She has eight dollars left. <laughs> well, you know what she's talking about, Mr. Clark? I'm the slightest idea. Would you, uh, would you like to explain it to him here, Mrs. Clark, or wait till you get home? I think it'd be better if I wait till I get home. <laughs> well, Mrs. Clark, you have $8 left. You can give that to your son with our regards. He sounds like a regular fellow to me. And Mr. Clark and Mrs. Clark, we'd like both of you to have for your home a beautiful year-round room air conditioner that gives you cool comfort and quiet comfort. Mr. Clark, I told you your stunt would be easy, didn't I? Well, it's all over. This is all you have to do. Just come out and get the prize, you and you'll get more when you get home. <laughs> Goodbye for People Are Funny. Last week, I looked out over our big studio audience here, and I picked out a man, and I might just well be frank with you, the man with the sourest puss I could find. A guy who looks like he has never grinned at anything. We got him up here on the stage. We found out, sure enough, he was that kind of a fellow. He didn't laugh or grin or smile much. And for a reason. We sent him to the sportsman's show at the Pan Pacific Auditorium. We put him there in a booth to see if people could make him laugh. Now, we're going to talk to him and find out what happened. His name is Mr. Pat Dildine. Would you come out, please? <laughs> what business are you in, Mr. Dildine? I'm an antique dealer. Uh-huh. And uh, you look uh, like an antique. Dealer. Now, Mr. Dildine, uh, you don't mind my kidding you about that, do you? No, that's all right. Uh, how, many, uh, how many people uh, were at the sportsman show this year, would you say, roughly? Well, I was told it was around 300,000. The booth where you were located was in the center of the activity. We had a sign hanging over your head, and what did the sign say? 
Says, uh, I'm a sourpuss. Make me laugh and win three pair of nylons. That's right. And, of course, the interesting thing about that was that we had all these lovely nylons down there, and uh, you weren't supposed to laugh. You had to look at the people, remember? That's right. And if you didn't laugh, you got a big prize, and each time you laughed, $25 worth of value was taken off the prize. That's right. All right, now, did, uh, did the people try? Oh, they tried all right. Uh-huh. And were they funny? Well, uh, the average person, when they try to be funny, don't uh, seem funny at all to me. But uh, there was one fellow, he tripped me. He, he didn't make me laugh, but he certainly had me on the verge of it. He came up, he had uh, been drinking, and uh, he tried for about 10 minutes to make me laugh. Then he, uh, he changed. He's, uh, he got real serious about this. He said that I was living wrong and that I wasn't getting anything uh, good out of life and that uh, I was uh, certainly going to be sorry for all this. And uh, he gave me a terrific lecture, and that's when I nearly broke down. <laughs> In other words, so, when he got serious, you thought it was funny. Yes, it was becoming real funny then. And then he left and was gone for about an hour. And he, I guess he got to thinking about it. And he came back in the same pitch all over. And he got down there. He drew a terrific audience around the place. And he was telling me what a sad person I was. It was real bad for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, last night was the one. Now, before we get to last night, I want to ask you about the kids. There were a number of kids at these shows. Did they try to get you to laugh? Oh, yes. The mothers brought all their children by and had them cross their eyes and stick their tongue out. <laughs> Did any of the women try to get you to laugh? Well, that was very peculiar. I heard some stories that I certainly didn't expect from women. The type of women that were doing this are surprising. I mean, well, that's what we try to prove on this show. People are funny, and it surprised you, didn't it? It surprised me, yes. Well, now, really uh, our, uh, our operatives were watching you through the week uh, to be sure that you didn't cheat on any laughing. And uh, they tell me that there was one guy who tried to stare you down. Oh, yeah, there was a fellow did that. He said the secret of this. I heard him talking to the people out front. He says it's just a question of staring the man in the eye longer than he can stare back at you. And uh, this turned into quite a thing. He, he just got up right in front of you and stared at you. Yes, he, he <laughs> said, uh, I think you're scared to look a person in the eye, he says, for any length of time. And he gave me the same routine, and we started, and it lasted about six minutes. Now, you said last night something happened, Mr. Dildine. What did happen? Well, this uh, makes me think. The more I think about it is that I was framed last night. What do you mean? A fellow came down there, and he did a regular comedy routine. He went through a whole show all by himself with the wardrobe and... Uh, Had a wardrobe? Yeah, the wardrobe. The, and they were around there taking pictures of it. And the more I think of it, I think that I've... I, you possibly had something to do with that, too. Well, as a matter of fact, Mr. Dildine, I might just as well tell you that our scouts had been watching, and you had not laughed all week long up until last night. That's right. We began to get desperate. We sent this fellow down there. His name is Danny Beck. He's a very funny professional comic. He's, he's been all over the United States, road shows, camp tours, and he's knocked himself out in front of soldiers and sailors. He always gets laughs. Well, I began to think that he was a professional when he did 20 minutes of it. Around but you, uh, <laughs> you didn't laugh. No, sir. Danny Beck did his best. And he didn't make you laugh. You didn't laugh through the whole week. And, Mr. Dildine, you have been awarded the prize as America's number one sourpuss. And it looks like you have won the $1,000 worth of prizes for the week. And, Fred, would you bring out the prize certificates for Mr. Dildine? Just give them to me right here. <laughs> Did you see what happened? His pants fell down. 
Mr. Dildine, I heard you laugh. A very serious-looking young man walked halfway across stage, his pants fell down, he ran off stage, and you laughed. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that for enough. <laughs> well, that cost you $25. No, as a matter of fact, it didn't happen at the sportsman show, and we're going to be fair, Mr. Dildine. You get the whole $1,000 prize. Mr. Dildine, I've given you the prize. Would you do me one favor? Certainly. Stay out of my audiences. At the beginning of the program, we sent a man and his wife out in different automobiles to see whether men or women were better drivers. And you remember I picked two people out of the audience to go along and take notes? Actually, those people were inspectors from the California Motor Vehicle Department, and they were really checking up on Mr. and Mrs. McEwen. In a minute, we'll find out which of them is the better driver. They're outside, so boys, bring them in and let's see what happened. Here comes the husband and the wife, Art McEwen and his wife, and they are both back from driving automobiles. Where did you drive to, Mrs. McCune? Oh, down su up Sunset and around Hollywood. You cruised very slowly. Very slowly. And you, uh, you dictated to your traveling companion everything you saw? Well, they were pretty good drivers. The only thing that I saw that wasn't right was one man came around a corner in a hurry without signaling. You were watching, and you only saw a man. You That's didn't see right. a woman do anything wrong. No, I saw a man, no women. Yeah, they women... were good drivers. Women were all doing That's good. That's right. But a man made a bad signal. That's right. All right, Mr. McCune, where did you drive? Well, I started up uh, Sunset and uh, up some of the side streets up in Hollywood, back down on another one, another side street. And uh, What did you see? Well, on one, I think I found the answer to the flying saucers when I see them passing on the outside of the cars. In other words, they make a left turn from the curb. Uh, well, the one, is, the one at the curb isn't in, is, starts out, I mean, sort of jumps the gun. Is that a man or a woman? That was a man. And uh, another one where I think the uh, woman uh, would like to take and collect her insurance, or at least her next of kin, uh, when you get up to the white traffic line, their pedestrian line, they step right out just about the time you're there, and they defy you, I guess. That was on one of the side streets, and it was a good chance of hitting someone if you wanted to. Now, this was a woman who stepped that's out. Right. She wasn't a driver, but she was a careless she pedestrian. Was, that's right. You, did you see a woman to... make a mistake? Not in driving. <laughs> you saw the woman make a mistake who was the pedestrian. Walking. You saw a man make a mistake yes. in driving. Right. So from your own observation, the men are not the better drivers tonight. At the moment. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it really isn't very important because actually, Mr. McCune, before you went along, you each insisted you were the better driver. And the men that we sent along with you were actually men from the Department of Motor Vehicles. And who do you think they were checking on? The pedestrians. <laughs> no, on you. <laughs> They were checking up on you and you both. And this is Mr. Ray Ward and Mr. Frank Helfrey. And these are the men who, by their careful screening of drivers in this area, are partly responsible for the amazing fact that Los Angeles has the lowest fatal accident rate of any large city in the United States. Maybe you folks didn't know that. That is true. Mr. Ward, what did Mr. McCune do if he did anything wrong as he drove through Hollywood? Well, to start off with, Mr. McEwen drove all the way around without his dash light on. Impossible to see the speedometer, know how fast he was going. At six different uh, times when he was forced to stop at uh, stop signs or for traffic, there was no arm signal in evidence at all. There was two occasions where he made a right turn and entered, ended up in the wrong lane. Instead of ending in the curb lane, he was out too wide. Uh, one particular case, he was slightly over the crosswalk line when he stopped his automobile. 
<clears throat> he drove in the center lane probably more than he should have. Had, he should have moved over a little bit, let the cars pass him on the left, and they wouldn't have been passing him on the right, as he remarked about. <clears throat> uh, in one particular case, he hesitated so long at a green light, I wondered where we was going in the place or where we were parking. <laughs> and on one particular, in one particular case, he almost went on through the red light after making his stop. I think he was noticing something on the curb of interest. <laughs> that, uh, that's an interesting report, Mr. McEwen. You ought to be out in eight years <laughs> with good behavior. It sounded like 20 here for a minute. Mr. Frank Alfrey, you are riding with Mrs. McCune. That is right. Uh, you have your notebook ready? Let's yes, hear what happened in her driving. Well, we got off to rather a bad start in backing out of the driveway out here. I was informed at the time that, that usually, uh, back where we come from, Pennsylvania, I believe, that we usually back up until we hear glass crash, and then that's <laughs> far enough. What was the, uh, after you got underway, what, uh, what did you observe? Uh, primarily the failure to give any arm signals. I did not observe an arm signal being given at any time for stopping right turns or left turns. I had my indicator, turn indicator on. Okay. <laughs> we'll pass. Oh, you, you had a... Uh... What does what your turn indicator consist of, Mrs. McKeown? Well, there's a device on the steering wheel. It signals that I'm going to make a left turn or a right turn. How about when you're making a stop? Well, I don't know whether I'm going to stop or go up. <laughs> or go up? <laughs> what else did you notice there, uh, Mr. Helfrey? Uh, driving in the wrong lane part of the time, straddling the white line of the one lane of traffic. Failure to make uh, full stops at the uh, stop signs on two different occasions. Kind of a sliding stop. Sliding stop, that is. Uh, we entered uh, an intersection after a traffic signal had changed to yellow on one occasion. Uh, what is that ordinarily, about a $25 fine? At least, minimum. <laughs> uh, one bad left turn, that is cutting the corner on the left turn and ending in the wrong lane of traffic. Aside what? from that, we did a fair job. Oh, huh? <laughs> what, uh, you gentlemen had a chance to compare notes. Have you decided which, in your estimation, is the better driver, Mr. McEwen or Mrs. McEwen? Uh, I have charged here against Mrs. McEwen a total of nine driving errors. And uh, Mr. Ward, what have you charged against Mr. McEwen? A round dozen. <laughs> For tonight, at any rate, our statistics, both in the observation by Mr. and Mrs. McCune and more importantly, the observations by Mr. Ward and Mr. Helfrey, proves that women are the better drivers. And thanks to all of you for proving that automobile drivers are funny. listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We've just heard an undated episode of People Are Funny, hosted by Art Linkletter.
Estou muito só, estou muito triste, desde que supe a cruel verdade. Sali a la calle desconcertado, sem saber como hasta aqui cheguei. A preguntarle a los empresarios, a preguntarle se deva ser. Sali a la calle desconcertado, sem saber como hasta aqui cheguei. A preguntarle a los empresarios, a preguntarle qué debo
hands across the table. That was Paul Small with Joel Reichman and his orchestra from 1934. Before that, La Copa del Olvido, The Cup of Sorrow, featuring Alcides Bresenio y Jorge Añez in a Spanish recording from 1923. And the extra table setting was commenced with a 1905 How'd You Like to Spoon With Me, Corinne Morgan and the Haydn Quartet. Thank you, dear friends. This concludes today's show. On behalf of Around the World's staff of researchers, recording engineers, interns, and Victrola technicians, this is Cracklin' Jane. Thank you, and see you next week.